Welcome to this Respiratory Compromise Institute podcast, featuring talks from leading thinkers at the Respiratory Compromise Symposium during the 2018 AARC Congress. The mission of the Respiratory Compromise Institute is to prevent suffering and death from respiratory compromise by optimizing its recognition, monitoring, and management. In this episode, Dr. Sidney Brayman brings us part two of the symposium's Medicare data mining section. Listen as he expands on the data showing the outcomes of patients with respiratory compromise. What I will do next is expand on some of the comments that he uh, has made about this database, the Medicare database. And I was particularly interested in looking deeper into this question of the surgical patient versus the medical patient. Uh, I have no disclosures relating to this particular subject matter. I would say that the study participants who were very helpful in our endeavors are listed here. And as you see, this was a uh, uh, endeavor of many individuals from a number of institutions. Um, respiratory failure, as you've heard during a hospitalization, is associated with an extremely high mortality. Uh, Phil mentioned uh, maybe upwards of 40% of people dying in the hospital, and as you saw, some of our statistics. So uh, it is indeed a, a, a challenging event uh, uh, when one develops respiratory failure in the hospital with rather poor outcomes. Uh, we assume that these events that are occurring in the hospital are preceded by this period of time, the respiratory compromise, uh, where acute decompensation may not be anticipated and certainly may not be carefully monitored. Using the CMS administrative claims data, we investigated respiratory failure that, as, as Jim said, occurred greater than 24 hours after hospital admission, and then compared the those with a surgical versus medical uh, stay uh, based on their, their DRGs. Um, the differences then were compared by various statistical methods. Now let me get jump right into the results. Number one, we found that medical use utilization, as perhaps we would have anticipated, is extremely high in the year prior to hospitalization with acute respiratory failure. Let me show you the both surgical and medical cases. Number one, just some demographics. The ages, as you see, were very, very similar. Remember, this is a, a Medicare database. When we looked, we were actually surprised to see that looking at the age group 65 to 75, 75, 85, 85 beyond, uh, and those some Medicare recipients, recipients are obviously are less than 65 years of age, uh, that the distribution was fairly consistent and, and common in, in each of these categories. So we really had a, a, a fairly broad span of, uh, of, of age group. Gender was fairly uh, uh, constant, as you see there, uh, uh, not really much of a difference. But what we did notice is that in the year prior to this hospitalization for acute respiratory failure, uh, number one, hospitalization rate was extremely high. So these were people certainly known to the system. Uh, they were previously um, hospitalized uh, and certainly more commonly in the surgical patient, which kind of surprised us. Uh, but this is obviously a group of people that had high utilization uh, and were coming in for uh, a surgical procedure. Uh, also, look at the incidence of, uh, uh, in this case, in previous nursing home uh, uh, in the last year. Uh, 26%, a quarter of the patients who came into the hospital, who developed respiratory failure in the hospital, had been in a nursing home the year before, uh, much less, as you see, uh, significantly less in the surgical patients. 
The second, and this was alluded to by Phil, is the medical comorbidities were very, very common in the year prior to admission. These are not very healthy group of, of people. Uh, so we really do have, and indeed a challenge as we think about preventative measures. Uh, here are the most common ICD-9 diagnostic codes found in the Medicare Part A and Part B records in the year prior to hospitalization. First, number one, obviously, acute respiratory failure, the 518.81. But when we look here, sorry, when we look here, we see that only 47% of the surgical patients, this is what Jim had been talking about, and 66% of the medical patients actually had a coding for acute respiratory failure. Um, I think that uh, this probably, as we think back on a number of uh, patients who we've seen over, over the years, is not a surprise. Uh, what happens is that when I went down to our coding department uh, a year or two ago and said to the coders, see, exactly how do you do this? How do you make this decision? And it really, they scan a chart for buzzwords. And if, and if the words uh, acute respiratory failure don't appear in the chart, very often that code does not, does not happen. So I think we really have a challenge in, in trying to get better data uh, when we're looking at uh, some of the codes like respiratory failure. As you see, uh, uh, not surprising, heart failure, hypertension, atrial fibrillation, and of course acute kidney failure. These are all high comorbidities in the patients who we were, uh, we were seeing being studied. Um, as I see, ICD-9 codes not often used during the admission. And here is what Jim was, uh, was alluding to, 47% uh, of the surgical and 66% of the medical patients had acute respiratory failure uh, here in the hospital. Heart failure, hypertension, atrial fib, these are all that were mentioned to you before. And once again, look at that acute kidney failure occurring in the hospital, worsening kidney failure in about a third of the patients on the, on the bottom line, you see that there. 32% in surgical, 36% in, in the medical patient. So this is a group of patients with several important comorbidities uh, who then uh, had this acute respiratory failure event. What about the pulmonary group? We would imagine that uh, many of the pulmonary diagnoses would be common in, in this cohort of patients. And actually, you'll see here on the right, yes, pneumonia, uh, chronic airway obstruction, aspiration. Obviously, all were significant comorbidities. The one that was actually quite low, we thought, was exacerbation of COPD, and when you think about it, most of the patients with COPD really would have that diagnosis probably coming into the emergency department uh, as an acute event and would not develop an exacerbation in the hospital. And so I think this sort of made, uh, made more, more sense to us. Uh, one of the things that, just as a side uh, uh, comment that we found, which I thought was kind of interesting, is when we looked at the use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation in the hospitalized patient, look at the percentages surgery, and medicine. Now remember, this was several, several years ago. My guess is that with the use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation in acute respiratory distress situations, it just keeps climbing and climbing. Uh, but you can see here that the surgeons uh, sort of didn't catch on to this as quickly as the internal medicine uh, groups did uh, in, during hospitalizations. The next also mentioned before was this mortality issue, which is we felt very distressing when we looked at these results. Uh, studies from the, two th from the 1990s and the early 2000s clearly showed uh, mortality was high in this group of patients, maybe a third of the patients, up to 40% of patients who would be dying in the hospital. 
so we were anticipating uh, uh, similar uh, uh, statistics, hoping that we would see improved statistics, uh, but indeed that's not the case. As you can see here, both medical and surgical cases, mortality was high, higher in the medical patients, as one might expect because of the, the multiple comorbidities of the medical patients. Um, but uh, as you can see here, 25% uh, surgical, 32% uh, and medical. One of the things that I really don't think any of us were anticipating, and Jim alluded to this before, was what happens in those 30 days post-hospitalization. Look at the rates of mortality after hospital discharge. Medical patients, 15%, surgical patients, 9.8, almost 10% of patients. Patients leaving the hospital, apparently stable enough to leave the hospital, and then dying within the next, uh, the next 30 days, very high rates. So this would give us, as Jim mentioned earlier, a combined mortality in med medical patients of nearly 50%. Look at that, 48%, uh, 35% in, in the surgical patient. Extremely high mortality when combining in hospital and post-hospital discharge, 30 days. Next, hospital mortality was considerably worse when acute kidney failure occurred during the hospitalization. So patients who came in may have had chronic renal failure and then developed more acute renal failure on top of their chronic renal failure, uh, or let's say they had no renal failure before they came in, had much, much higher rates of, uh, of mortality. Here you see here on the top the medical uh, um, group and on the bottom the surgical group. And you can see no diagnosis of ki kidney failure, diagnosis of a kidney failure, and you can see here died in the hospital, uh, no kidney failure, 29%, died with acute kidney failure, 39.7%, extremely high rate and you can see here died within 30 days also, 15%. So this is, I think, a signal that indeed, uh, obviously renal replacement therapy, other monitoring in the hospital of renal failure, extremely important. This is a very, very high uh, uh, rate of uh, mortality group uh, and also their post-hospital mortality, extremely high. You can see it was less so in the surgical group, uh, but also significant difference is if there was kidney failure in the hospital, 27% versus 19.8%. Post-hospital mortality also high. So these are the numbers that I think we need to look at and be concerned is that these, these relative rates of mortality with and without acute kidney failure. Next, uh, we wanted to know about the cost of all this hospital respiratory failure. And particularly, we had some interesting data, not only on the cost of this, but when we looked at various hospitals across the country and categorized them as large hospitals, smaller hospitals, medium-sized, academic centers, and so forth, that we had data that we could look and compare the cost of that admission. And here's what we see. Look at the difference between small hospitals, 26 to 50 beds, medium-sized hospitals, 201 to 400 beds, and larger hospitals greater than 400 beds. Look at the differential in terms of Medicare payments to the to these hospitals for acute respiratory failure, ranging from $12,000 a visit up to $29,000. What's even more startling, I think, is when we look at the teaching hospital versus non-teaching hospital, where there is uh, about a $10,000 difference in rate. So the larger hospitals, the teaching hospitals, obviously have a greater cost. Uh, I will leave it to you to try to think about the reasons for that. Maybe we can discuss this uh, in the question and answer session. Um, are there just maybe sicker patients coming into these larger hospitals? Maybe you argue with that with the academic hospital. Are they just more 
costly uh, to, to run. Uh, those are some interesting points. So let me conclude and, and talk about some of the major points that we think we found. Number one, uh, Medicare patients who develop in-hospital respiratory failure do have many comorbidities uh, during this index hospitalization. There are sick patients before that with high utilization in the year before, uh, high hospitalization rate, and certainly uh, uh, nursing home rate. Both medical and surgical patients, we feel, have just an unacceptably high hospital and 30-day post-hospital mortality. And it clearly is worsened when you have acute kidney failure in the hospital during this, uh, this, uh, this sentinel uh, uh, hospitalization. Many patients who develop respiratory failure have a preceding unstable period of respiratory compromise, a state in which there's a high likelihood of decompensation into respiratory failure or death. So with this said, my final conclusion is I think the results of our study will urge us to carefully study respiratory compromise in hospitalized patients with a focus on early preventive strategies to reduce respiratory failure that develops during a hospitalization. Thanks for listening to this Respiratory Compromise Institute podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, visit respiratorycompromise.org for more information on research, education, and prevention.